read the passage that uh, we're going to be studying this morning. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 12, and now let me read this passage with us. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bibles. Acts 12, starting verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. This is one of those passages that you really wish that You know, maybe there's a movie made about it so we could kind of see what was going on. Well, you're in luck. Our fellowship kids have made a movie about it. It was about this time that King Herod arrested someone who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. I am arresting those that call themselves Christians. James is dead. Now I must capture the other troublemaker they call Peter. Ah, there he is. Guard, seize him. You mean, ah, uh, We will let the people decide what to do with him after the Passover. Keep watch on him. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God. Quick! Get up, Peter! Pull off your clothes and sandals! Wrap your cloak around you and follow me! Now I know, Dr. Doug, that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches, and now all that the Jewish people would have anticipated. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Here's at the door! No, no, you're mine! It is, it is! I saw him and heard his voice! It must be an angel! Sit down. How did you get here? An angel of the Lord let me out. Don't tell James and the brothers about this. I'm a little jealous because they get to do that every week down there as they're studying through the book of Acts and, and acting it out. The passage continues. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. 
And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Well, that was fun, getting the kids out of here. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you're down at F3, we welcome you this morning down there. And those of you watching online, uh, good morning to you. And for those watching online, uh, make sure you thank our tech team because we've had some glitches this week in our sound system. So we've got the extra speakers here, but they figured out uh, to... to how to stream it for you folks today, so um, make sure you thank them. They're, they work tirelessly um, to do that, so glad to do that. I will never forget um, a conversation that Lisa and I had uh, back in Butte, Nebraska, back where, where I was pastoring that little rural church, with a, a missionary couple by the name of Dell and Lois Carper. They um, had served God in the mission field in Africa in what was called Belgium, Congo. And in the mid-60s, there was um, what was called the Bloody Simba Rebellion took place in Belgium, Congo. Uh, it was a time of great turmoil. And uh, Lois and the kids had already been evacuated out of Stanleyville uh, in Congo. But Del Carper and other colleagues, including Dr. Paul Carlson, uh, remained on in Stanleyville at that mission compound uh, to wrap some things up. And they got caught in the Simba Rebellion. The, the rebels came in to that area, captured them, and uh, it was a very desperate time. In fact, one morning, the men were herded out uh, and placed up against a, the compound wall in the back of the property, and they knew exactly what was about to take place. And um, sure enough, one of the Simba rebels began firing at the men on that wall. And Dr. Paul Carlson shoved Dell and told him, get over the wall. It was a high wall. And he helped push him up. And Dell climbed over the wall. He's telling us the story. I mean, we were just sitting there spellbound in our home as he was telling this tale. And he reached back down over the wall to grab Dr. Carlson to pull him to safety. And that's when the Simba bullets struck Dr. Carlson. He was killed instantly. And Dell is telling us this with tears in his eyes some 20, 30 years after the event had happened because um, it was so vivid. Uh, within a few moments, uh, minutes, the uh, Belgium soldiers came. They rescued them. They were able to shut down that rebellion. But one man died and one man lived. And the story that we are looking at in Acts chapter 12, it's the same thing. It's a story of how one man died and one man lived 
by the miraculous intervention of God. Now, we've read the first five verses here of Acts chapter 12, and I just want to make a couple of uh, observations about uh, that, uh, those opening verses. First of all, we have to understand that the early church was battling for its life. This event takes place about 10 years after the church was started in Acts chapter 2. So 10 years has transpired. And Herod, it says, was the king. <clears throat> it says Herod, his name is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the nephew of the Herod that had put John the Baptist to death, maybe about a dozen years earlier. And he's the grandson of uh, that great Herod, Herod the Great, who had built the temple and was the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod Antipas um, was courting the favor of the Jewish elite, of the Jewish religious leaders, and he had um, great favor with them. And as the church grew during these 10 years after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, I mean, we've seen that. It had spread to the Samaritan region. Um, it had spread to um, places far north into the regions of Galilee, it says in chapter 9, verse 31. Um, and as we saw in chapter 10, Peter goes and shares the good news with the Gentile, with the Roman centurion, uh, Cornelius. So the, the, the good news of Jesus and the followers of Jesus are growing. And it was unnerving to the Jews. And in order to court the favor of the Jews, it says in verse 1 there, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. There was a lot to hate about the early church, and that hatred was boiling over, and it was um, having some very visi visible and physical signs. Second observation is Herod's strategy was to eliminate the leaders of the church. Cut off the head, you take care of the beast, supposedly. And it says in verse 2 that the first of the disciples to be martyred was James. James was the brother of John. They were called the sons of thunder, right? Those are, you know, Peter, James, and John had been the inner circle of the disciples of Jesus. And James is killed by the sword. Uh, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know all the details. In fact, one verse is donated to it. You compare that with, uh, just kind of a side note, you compare that with the, the story of Stephen. Uh, chap two chapters are devoted to Stephen, six and seven. And I think... The reason for that is that Luke, who is writing this, was the travel companion of the Apostle Paul, and Paul was there as Saul, the young um, shining star of, uh, the, of Judaism, of uh, the Pharisees, of the Sanhedrin. And so I think Luke got a blow-by-blow -blow count of the whole Stephen story, and he filled us in, but no one was there when James was killed. And there's one verse donated uh, to the death of James. But the strategy of Herod is he was going after the leaders and he arrests Peter too. The thing about Peter's imprisonment, here's a third observation, is that it was inescapable. Um, Herod intended to execute Peter immediately. And um, it says there in uh, verse 4 that when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Uh, 
maybe he remembered back in chapter 5 a, a few years before where uh, they were miraculously released from prison. Well, Herod was not going to let that happen again. And so there are four squads of soldiers. Now, uh, there are historical documents that kind of tell this strategy, this Roman strategy. So basically, Peter was chained to two soldiers, and then there were two more guarding his prison cell, the door, doorway. So there's four soldiers. But there are four squads of those soldiers, so apparently every three hours they would rotate. Um, so they were fresh, and no one would fall asleep, certainly at night. And so there were 16 soldiers designated to guard Peter, chained to him, guarding the door, rotating in and out every three hours. Peter's imprisonment was inescapable. There's a fourth observation. Peter's arrest, it says, was sovereignly timed. It says that it was um, at the time of uh, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. It was, verse 3, during the days of the unleavened bread. So it was this high and holy feast time of Judaism. And to be sensitive to the Jews, Herod wasn't going to execute him during that feast day, but as soon as that was over, he was going to eliminate Peter. But there was something sovereignly timed about that. It was during that waiting period that something very significant was going on. And that's a fifth observation. The church was praying. The church was fervently in prayer. Uh, notice uh, how Luke writes this. It says, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. So do you got the picture? The, Peter's in prison, the church is in prayer. And that verse, verse 5, I think is the most significant verse of this. So it, it, it governs the whole, this whole chapter. Peter's in prison, the church is in prayer. And it was through that prayer that, and here's the sixth observation, God miraculously intervened in answer to that prayer. Um, let me pick up and, and read here again, starting in verse 6. It says, on that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front uh, of the door, and they were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. By the way, well, let's keep reading. It suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. Seriously, would you be sleeping if you were going to be executed the next day? Um, Peter was, and you know you, we can read be, between the lines here, but man, he had a peace of the Lord. The church was praying for him, and maybe that's what they were praying, that God would give him peace, but he's fallen asleep. In fact, the angel, it says, has to kick him. Is that, have you ever been kicked by an angel? You know, boom, to wake him up. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. <clears throat> Get up quickly. And then the chains fall off. And verse 8, the angel said to him, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. We saw that played out by our FBC children's players here in this video. And he went out, verse 9, and continued to follow. And he did not know what was, going, uh, what was being done by the angel, uh, but the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out, went out along one of the streets, and immediately the angel departed from them. So you got the scene, just like 
I mean, he's like a zombie walking in his sleep, and he's, it's like a dream, and it, this can't be real, and the chains fall off, and he walks out, and the guards don't even see what's going on. They walk right past. The door mysteriously suddenly just opens, and they're out in the street, and then all of a sudden, the angel's gone, and he's smelling the fresh night air, and it's real. Well, it says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, verse 12, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, the, the man who wrote the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, and there were many gathered together, and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came, to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're nuts or you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Peter's probably dead by now. It's his ghost. You're, you're nuts, Rhoda. But Peter continued knocking. And finally, when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. I don't know what kind of a prayer meeting this was, but it wasn't full of faith, was it? Um, they were praying, and it says they were praying fervently, but um, it, was, it was like one of these prayers like, you know, I, it's, God's probably not going to answer this, but we're going to keep praying. And then when he does, has that ever happened to you? Where God answers prayer, and it's like we scratch our head like, wow, how did that happen? Well, you prayed, right? Uh, and God answered that prayer. And these people are amazed. They're shocked. But motioning, verse 17, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, now report these things to James. Now that's James, the brother of Jesus. So James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of that early church at this time. He wrote the first epistle uh, that was written in, in the early church, the, um, the epistle of James, of James. And then it says in the last part of verse 17, then he left and went to another place. Smart guy. You think Peter would go, or Herod was going to go, and when they found out that Peter had escaped and they're going to be on a search for him, um, he takes off and goes to another place, and who knows where that was. But verse 18 continues, And when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when, they, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. If you, I don't know if they did all 16 of them, but probably maybe just the four. You know, that was a tough rotation that night to be, a, to be the one that, uh, that Peter escaped from. And then it says Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Um, prayer. A complete turnaround of events. James was dead, but Peter is now alive. God answered prayer. And I think that is what made the difference. That's the key verse, verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made fervently, continuously by the church of God. Peter was in prison. The church was in prayer. 
And so let me just take this passage and share a few principles about prayer. I think there are various things here that we could uh, look at, but let me just share about five principles of prayer uh, from this passage this morning. Here's the first one. <clears throat> These are in your notes and on the website. First one, prayer is an expression of man's dependence upon God. Prayer expresses our dependence upon the Lord. You know, God just wasn't some extra help that night. The, the people were trying to do an escape plan for Peter. I mean, th th this was an impossible situation. Uh, Peter was in an inescapable situation in prison. Um, you've probably heard people talk about the little phrase, oftentimes, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. The fact of the matter is God delights to help those who are incapable of helping themselves. And this is such an example of being in a place of extreme dependency. And God delights <clears throat> when we get into a situation where we have no place to go but to God. And when we pray, it is an expression of our dependence upon him, total dependence upon him. Second principle about prayer is that God's power is released when God's people pray. Would, would Peter have been executed if the people had not been praying fervently and continuously? I don't know. Would, would James had lived, had the church failed to pray for James? Were they praying for James? We don't know. I don't understand how this all works but I do know that God invites us to pray, right? Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll answer you. And sometimes those prayers are answered by saying no. Sometimes those prayers are answered by saying yes. Sometimes those prayers are answered by just saying, just wait. Just wait. But the scriptures tell us that God's power is released when God's people pray. Uh, from the human standpoint, um, it, it was like, why pray in this situation? There's no hope for Peter. But they prayed. And to their utter amazement and shock, God answered the prayer. And I'm sure it reinforced in their thinking, you know what, it is true. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll answer you. Um, God hears the prayers of his people. And his power is somehow unleashed when God's people pray. The old Baptist pre uh, preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way, and I love this quote. He said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Now, God isn't necessarily sitting back there and waiting for us to pray for him to move, for his power to be uh, unleashed. He invites us and he gives us the opportunity to participate in what he's going to do. And he, he stirs us and he, he calls us to pray. And uh, God is sovereign. Uh, he's going to do whatever he wants to do. But yet there is something about God's muscles of omnipotence moving when that slender nerve of prayer is uttered before him. 
But that is a um, third principle here. The most important thing about prayer is not the power of our faith, but the power of our sovereign God. Um, Obviously, in this story, the believers were not praying uh, with a lot of faith, as I've already noted. Their faith was pretty weak. Peter knocks at the door. The one servant girl recognizes it's Peter, but everybody else thinks she's nuts. Not a lot of faith there. Um, Yet, Jesus tells us you have faith of the littlest, most minuscule, like a mustard seed. And you could tell that mountain to be lifted up and moved. The question is not the issue of our faith. The question is the sovereign God that is moving. And he invites us into his plan and his purposes through prayer so that we participate in that. It's a wonderful privilege to pray, to be called into that, that um, throne of grace before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. God is sovereign. James died and Peter lived. Dr. Paul Carlson died and Del Carper lived. Don't understand it. Don't understand the whys and the wherefores. God is sovereign, but he invites us to pray. But why? If God is going to sovereignly do what he wants to do anyway. Well, because again, he he commands us to. And we get to be a part of the blessing of answered prayer and the unfolding of God's plan. So he invites us, but he commands us also to pray. And he also delights in our prayer. Here's another principle. God delights in the fervent prayers of his children. He loves it when we pray. As it says in uh, Proverbs 15, 8, the prayer of the upright is his delight. He loves it when his children pray, uh, pray to him, crawl up in his lap, so to speak, and say, Abba, Father. We're watching uh, this weekend two of our little grandkids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, while their parents are celebrating the anniversary. I should say, Lisa is watching the one-year-old and the three-year-old. Um, there's nothing better than when those little kids, your kids, your grandkids, whatever, just come up and say, help me, Papa. Help me, Grandpa. Help me, Daddy. Um, God delights when his children just talk to him and say, help me, Daddy. I need you. And do it with fervency. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. Attend to it constantly with fervency. That's a strong word. Devote yourself to prayer. Elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says pray without ceasing. Or Romans 12, 12, continue diligently in prayer. Or Ephesians 6, 18, it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray with, with uh, energy, with um, intensity, with continual devotion to prayer. In the early church, that marked the early church. Acts chapter 1, we saw it, verse 14. These all were with one mind continuously devoted themselves to prayer. And then that was before the Holy Spirit descended. 
Jesus told them to wait. And they waited, but they devoted themselves to prayer. And then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and they're still continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Continual devotion to prayer. And what, in all these passages, what God is telling us is don't take a ho-hum attitude to prayer. Devote yourself to it with an intensity to it. You're communing with Almighty God who's accomplishing His purposes, whether they were small or, or great, but, but talk with Him. He delights in it. He invites us to do it. Pray without ceasing with great devotion. Obviously, He's not saying every waking moment we're, we're to be uttering prayers, but it does say something about a continual attitude towards God, a prayerful attitude. You see something going on, you're listening to new, the news or whatever, and it, it stirs us up, it, it, it upsets us. We, we talk to God about it. Just say, Lord God, you, you know, those, those people in, in Nashville, minister to them. Or you're, you're, you're seeing something good that takes place, and so you just, thank you, Father. It's just kind of a, a normal, natural praise of thanks to Him. It's, it's a continual devotion to Him. It's a, it's a relationship with him. You see that non-Christian coworker, or, or fellow student or neighbor, just shoot a prayer up to the Lord. Lord, open their heart. Use me today. That ongoing attitude. Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. I need your wisdom. And you tell me in James chapter 1 to ask for it, and you'll give it to me liberally. Lord, I, I need help in this. I, I need to understand this. Whatever the situation is, we go to him in prayer. We are constantly communing with him so that God is not relegated to some Sunday morning event or, or a set time, a, you know, a devotional time where now I'm going to pray. It's just this, on, we nurture this ongoing relationship with the Lord and we talk with him. Um, if God is burdening you with a need, just keep praying. Do it consistently, even when we don't see the answer to it. You are living with an unsaved spouse. Keep praying. Be devoted consistently. Keep at it. You're praying for a spouse. Keep praying. Keep at it. Keep consistently uh, going to the Lord with it. Um, you're looking for that right job or whatever it is, and it's not happening or whatever. I've been praying for this for three years or 30 years. I remember one of my <clears throat> professors from Dallas Seminary. Dr. Howard Hendricks, he prayed for his dad's salvation for 50 years. And finally on his deathbed, the man came to Christ. Be devoted to prayer. Do it consistently. Do it fervently. Don't give up. Jesus gave a whole parable in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. It says he was telling them this parable to show that at all times, his disciples ought to pray and not to lose heart. Keep at it. Keep praying. Even if your faith is weak, even if you think this is not ever going to take place, but you just keep praying. Be devoted to prayer. Make it a priority of your life to become an expert in the art of talking with God. Be devoted to prayer because God delights when his children just crawl up into his lap and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, would you hear this prayer? Do you see this situation? Lord, help in this. Lord, what, what would I say in here? What should I do here? 
a continual attitude of prayer. God delights in it. Here's a fifth thing about prayer. God answers prayer so that he receives the glory. Um, notice what Peter, how Peter worded it in verse 17 after he came into the home and he motions to them with his hand to be silent. And then it says, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. He gave the glory to the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 15, again, God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. But then it says, and you shall glorify me. You shall glorify me. That is, you're, you, let people know. Oftentimes in the Psalms it'll say, I will tell to the congregation, or I will tell to the assembly. I will go pay my vows and, and tell the good things that the Lord has done. And so we celebrate those times of answered prayer. Um, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll answer you and you will glorify me. Again, to quote that old 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon, I, I love this quote too. He said this once, God and praying man take shares. First, here's your share. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And secondly, here's God's share. I will deliver thee. And again, you take a share. You'll be delivered. And then again, it is the Lord's turn. He'll be glorified. Here is a compact, a covenant that God enters into with you who pray to him, whom he helps. He says, you shall have the deliverance, but I must have the glory. Here is a delightful partnership. We obtain that which we so greatly need, and all that God getteth is the glory which is due unto his name. Another author said it this way, prayer puts God in the place of the all-sufficient benefactor and it puts us in the place of the needy beneficiaries. And we never should lose sight of that. There are constant, isn't there? This, probably this past week, we could give testimony to every one of us to situations that we wondered, you know, how is this going to work out? Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Lord, what, 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 what's going on in this world? And, and we pray to him. But every time we pray, we're putting ourselves as beneficiaries of people in need. And we're going to the great God who said, call upon me. Talk to me. Commune with me. Let's have a conversation. And I will answer you. I'll show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And it puts him in the place of the benefactor. He gets the glory. Prayer is that expression where God just delights in it because he's going to get the glory. Um, this principle of God getting, getting the glory is, I think, accentuated in this story because of Herod. This story in chapter 12 is bookended uh, at the beginning with uh, the emphasis on Herod, verse 1 and 2. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church. So it starts with Herod, but it ends with the story of Herod. Now, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, and, and we don't know the historical background. I, I did read a little bit about that. It doesn't matter, but apparently there was a dispute over um, 
Herod had put an embargo probably on the ports of Tyre and Sidon and there were, because they were being stinkers and whatnot. Just something was going on. Um, and so he, he got angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, his, this Herod's um, chief of staff, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So there was a dispute and something was going on and they upset Herod and now they got to try to get in his good graces. So it goes on and says, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took a seat on the rostrum and began uh, delivering an address to these people of Tyre and Sidon. And so what did the people do to get in his good graces again? They kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And uh, that was a real head rush for Herod. But immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. My little nine-year-old granddaughter, she loved that verse. She, she, Grandpa, did you know that Herod was eaten by worms? I said, yeah, and you will be too if you don't obey. No, I didn't say that. But it, it was there for a moment. You know, the story of the death of Herod is an example of what happens when God doesn't get the glory. Here is Herod, the king, and he took the glory for himself. God wasn't in the picture of his life. He was focused on himself. He fabricated his own self-glory. It's the voice of a God, not of a man. And boom. And history tells us this Herod Antipas was struck down suddenly and his life was over. Notice, by the way, the very next verse. We read it, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be uh, multiplied. There's God working. There's the real king in charge. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. There's only one king the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing thwarts the triumph of the gospel. That's the theme of the book of Acts. This ongoing story of the triumph of the gospel, well, it's also the story of the triumph of the king, just like here in chapter 12. Oh, Herod was the king, but the real king was in charge, as Peter found out, as the early church found out as Herod found out. This is Palm Sunday. It was on that first Palm Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in fulfillment of scriptures and Zechariah riding that donkey. And his disciples would cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They waved their palm branches, his followers. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But the Jewish Leaders and people would cry, there is no king, we have no king but Caesar. And they put to death their Messiah, their king. Peter condemned the Jews. Back in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, he said it this way, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. But you didn't. 
the one whom you delivered, disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You put to death the prince of life. There was no glorifying the king. The father glorified him. You did not. And maybe Peter was remembering those words, we have no king but Caesar. You put him to death. This Friday, we'll be remembering that time that Jesus went to the cross. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who had stepped from his throne in glory, entered into this world, became fully man, for the express purpose of taking our sin, the sin of the world, upon himself, and to die as a sacrificial substitute to take our place. He died for our sins, John said in 1 John 2, 2, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's an amazing thought. Everybody we come in contact with, <clears throat> everybody we run in, in, uh, past, everybody we see, everybody we hear on the news, everybody's sins have been paid for. But it avails them nothing if they don't receive it as a free gift. This is really the whole message, I think, of the book of Acts that we've been studying. The story of the triumph of the King of Kings, who in his sovereign working out of his plan, spread the gospel, the good news, starting in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the uttermost part of the world. Dr. Paul Carlson was killed in Belgium, Congo. The Simba Rebellion, though, ended. And to this day, even Fellowship Bible Church, we work in the Democratic Republic of Congo and next door to Zambia, where Michael and Bernadette Boone work, and we will be sending a team of our youth over there uh, this summer. God's work continues. The King of Kings reigns, and he's on Folding his plan of the ages. And he invites us to participate in it by prayer, by talking with him, by engaging in that relationship with him. And of course, the first step of that relationship, in fact, the first prayer that we can pray to him is that prayer that says, Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust him as my Savior. It is that prayer of thanksgiving where we acknowledge our faith and we enter into a relationship, a forever eternal relationship with God. Have you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, the only king, the only one worthy to receive your glory and honor? He came 2,000 years ago and he died on the cross and he paid for your sins. It's a done deal. But if you don't receive that free gift, you'll never experience the joy of eternal life with him. He's done all the work. It's signed, sealed, already delivered. There's an empty tomb outside Jerusalem because on the third day he rose again, as we'll celebrate next week. But he invites you to receive that free gift by faith, by simply believing that Jesus died and rose again. 
And if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you're still putting your faith and trust in maybe something you do, something you've accomplished, like being here at church or giving money to whatever or trying to obey the Ten Commandments or being a good, clean liver of some point, <laughs> give that all up because none of that will ever make a difference in eternity. We will never be good enough to get to heaven on our own. So we repent of that. That means we're going to we totally change your mind about that thinking and let me share with you the right thinking. Put your faith in Christ and Him alone. And in that moment of faith, the Bible says you have eternal life. One day, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess Him as Lord, as King. We get to do it right now. We get to do it every day of our life. And every time we bow the knee and pray and we say, Lord God, this is my day of trouble. Or, Lord, I'm not sure what I should do in this moment. It might be very insignificant, but every time we commune with him in prayer, we're saying, you're king, I'm not. So do your way, have your way, do your will. Would you bow your head, please? Father, on this Palm Sunday, as people waved the palm branches and cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, every time we bend the knee in prayer, every time we bow our head and we say something maybe so insignificant or something so traumatic that we're going through and we cry out to you, every time we lift our voice to you, it's like we're waving the palm branches and we're saying, you're the king. I'm not, you are. Now help me, Lord, help me. May we continually grow in this wonderful blessing of prayer. And even if we struggle in actually thinking you're going to answer that prayer like these early believers did about Peter, it doesn't change the fact that uh, you're going to accomplish your purposes. We get the blessing as the beneficiaries, but you are the king. May we come boldly before your throne of grace and always, always, that we can find help and mercy in time of need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.